0: Have you ever wondered why we call French fries, French fries, or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. The royal palace in Pella Macedon, the center of Philip II's expanding Macedonian Empire, was one of the most impressive buildings of the ancient world. A massive complex, occupying 70,000 square meters with opulent buildings featuring Greek Ionic architecture, it was situated on an elevation just north of the city proper. Meaning that, as one made their way uphill, Along the main road of the bustling capital city from the agora, or public gathering space, to the palace, the magnificent structure became all the more imposing as one neared its entrance. However, to Philip, as he approached the palace in the late spring of 346 BCE, with an entourage of his elite companions trailing behind, returning from yet another successful military campaign in Thrace. He paid the exquisite surroundings little attention, his mind much more focused on those he knew he would find within, while wrestling with scenarios and possibilities, possessing an uncanny ability to understand the wants and needs of friend and foe alike, anticipating how events might play out. And deeply savoring this moment, as he confidently continued on to his personal quarters, where ambassadors from all over Greece had been patiently waiting, in some instances, for months to speak with the Macedonian king. An unofficial milestone reached for the kingdom of Macedon. Respect and recognition as a major power, with Philip seen as a leader of Greek affairs. No longer a second-rate kingdom, no longer an afterthought or a plaything of greater powers. As Philip strode into the courtyards and halls where those desiring an audience with the king awaited at his leisure, an aide leaned in to whisper, pointing out the delegations that were present. That included representatives from Thessaly and Phocis, and the three city-states that had each dominated Greece for a time, Athens, Sparta, and Thebes. All of whom rose to their seats when Philip came into view, with Philip, in turn, acknowledging each with a simple nod as he walked on towards the rooms where the in-depth discussions would be held with each delegation individually behind closed doors. The overarching goal shared by all of course being looking towards Philip to resolve the Third Sacred War, putting an end to the exhaustive ten-year conflict, but underneath the surface each attempting to influence Philip for favorable outcomes at the expense of the other nations present. A notion that Philip was well aware of, and the type of environment and negotiations that he thrived in, that he could twist and bend to extract yet more prizes and accolades to strengthen his kingdom. All the while realizing that Pella was now not only the center of the Macedonian Empire, it was quickly becoming the center of the world. Welcome to the Warlords of History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 17 and the sixth part of the series exploring the lifetime and exploits of Philip II, King of Macedon. As a quick suggestion, if you haven't done so yet, you might want to begin with episodes 12 to 16 to gain a more complete understanding of the timeline and events in the lead-up towards what we'll be covering here. That touch upon the history of the ancient kingdom of Macedon, locked in a tumultuous cycle, experiencing short bursts of momentum and growth, only to be wrangled in and brought to the edge of collapse at numerous points along the path frustratingly unable to build a solid foundation for sustainable growth, entrenched as a second-rate kingdom with mediocre military power, weighed down by infighting, while desperately fending off foreign manipulations and more overt attempts at takeover. How Macedon was able to stay afloat and survive is rather miraculous in itself. However, this word miraculous is probably a more fitting descriptor considering what unfolded after Philip was appointed to lead the kingdom in 359 BCE, guiding it from a particularly dark moment near complete disaster, to not simply survive, but thrive. The first small steps in what would later become known as the Rise of Macedon, which included a complete overhaul of the Macedonian military, Using this innovative and finely tuned force, along with Philip's notable flair for diplomatic genius to repair and stabilize the internal discord hampering Macedon, invigorate its economy while also beginning to tame the surrounding nations, eventually clawing back every inch of Macedon's ancestral domains, then taking his kingdom into completely uncharted territory, turning to the expansion of its borders. In the process yielding a wider and arguably more powerful class of adversaries, none more imposing than the city-state of Athens, who were desperately juggling initiatives while trying to fill the power vacuum in Greece and keep the 2nd Athenian League together in the effort to reassert their strength and relive the past glories of their 5th century BCE empire. When Athenian power was at its zenith placing Macedon and Athens squarely in each other's way, and plunging them into a bitter war that would eventually cascade into a fight for supremacy in Greece. A war that was well underway as we covered in episode 16, with Philip leading his potent forces to conquer the city of Mithone, the last Athenian presence close to Macedonia's domains that was then erased off the map. This conquest. Marking a major milestone in Philip's career, allowing him from there on in to focus almost exclusively on the expansion of his kingdom, Macedonian power and influence. First aiming eastwards at the expense of Amadocus II, the Odrysian ruler in central Thrace, followed by a campaign into northern Greece in 353 BCE, involving Macedon in the Third Sacred War and facing the vast Phocian army of hoplite mercenaries under its commander-in-chief, Onomarcos, who outfoxed Philip and dealt the Macedonians a humbling defeat, forcing Philip to retreat all the way back to Macedon and rebuild the strength and confidence of his army, using divine inspiration as the catalyst to reinvigorate the troops as the avengers of the god Apollo, whose temple had been defiled by the Phocians. Returning to Thessaly the following year, to eviscerate Onomarchos and the Phocian army at the Battle of Crocus Field, said to be one of the bloodiest battles of ancient Greece, thereby gaining control of northern Greece in the process but prevented from moving southwards, finding an Athenian-led coalition blocking his path at Thermopylae, which is where we had last left things off in episode 16. Being late autumn 352 BCE, with Philip leading his army back to Macedon in triumph, following their dazzling victory at the Battle of Crocus Field, and the 30-year-old Macedonian king subsequently being named Tagus of Thessaly, meaning its supreme military leader. And although the Phocians had indeed been thoroughly mauled in the encounter, never again being as dangerous as they were under Onomarcos, the Third Sacred War would nonetheless continue to drag on, Since Focus had been saved from total devastation thanks to the Athenian-led coalition of troops standing in Philip's way at Thermopylae. With Philip wisely refusing to launch an attack, given the defensive advantages that the site offered his adversaries, and having learned well the harsh lesson and potential price to be paid in Macedonian blood when fighting under less than ideal conditions but before leaving, making the most out of the moment to at least extract a public relations win out of the stalemate. Reprimanding the defenders, casting a rather harsh light on the Athenian commander and troops for standing in the way of the gods being avenged for the insults that were levelled their way. Contrasting this to when a Greek coalition of a similar size stood on the side of justice, using Thermopylae to stand in defiance to the Achaemenid Persian invasion of 480 BCE. According to the ancient Roman historian Justin, Philip stating something along the following lines, For then, they fought on behalf of the liberty of Greece, now on behalf of public sacrilege, then to defend the temples of the gods from the ravages of an enemy, now to defend the plunderers of temples against the avengers of their guilt acting as dishonorable advocates of the crime. As harshly as these words would have stung, no one moved aside to let the Macedonians through, so Philip led his forces back north, with the reality being that there were other attractive opportunities to strengthen his kingdom that were popping up elsewhere. Cries for help that were being emitted by the two independent Greek city-states of Byzantium and Perinthus. Found beyond the eastern limits of Maston's borders in Thrace. Byzantium, the modern day city of Istanbul in Turkey, located near the southern mouth of the Bosporus Strait, and Perinthus, situated about 100 kilometers to the west of Byzantium, urgently reaching out to Philip, requesting military aid to help protect them against the belligerent ways of the lone remaining Odrygian ruler in eastern Thrace, King Cursobleptes that we were introduced to in the last episode. As you may recall, Philip had last been active in Thrace from 354 to mid-353 BCE, ending this campaign prematurely after responding to calls from Thessaly to intervene in the Third Sacred War in Greece. And although it had ended prematurely, by all standards it had been an overwhelmingly successful endeavour. During which the Macedonians steamrolled the forces of King Amadocus II, acquiring vast territories in central Thrace and leaving Amadocus in a severely weakened state. That Cursobleptes opportunistically seized upon after Philip had left for Greece, finishing the job that Philip had started, ransacking what remained of Amadocus's kingdom and deposing its ruler, who died shortly thereafter wedding his appetite for more acquisitions, now targeting Byzantium and Perinthus. Prompting Philip to respond to their calls for aid and set out with his forces, numbering approximately 20,000 from their base in the city of Pharae in southern Thessaly, marching 500 kilometers through Macedon to the furthest extent of its eastern border, where the city of Marania lay, on the Thracian coast of the Aegean Sea. Hardly stopping to take a breath, immediately invading Cursobleptes' lands, just as 352 gave way to 351 BCE. Unfortunately, as is the case with most of Philip's Thracian campaigns, this one too is frustratingly light in terms of historical documentation. So while battles were indeed fought there, we don't have much detail on the size and scale of the encounters, nor the sizes of the armies that Cursobleptes put in Philip's path. However, the prevailing narrative is that the initial stages of the invasion went overwhelmingly well for the Macedonian army, who managed to inflict a series of devastating defeats upon the Adrygians in a relatively short amount of time, capturing more Thracian territories and some additional settlements along the northeastern coast of the Aegean Sea, inching closer and closer to the Gallipoli Peninsula and to having control over the Dardanelles Strait. This steady progression evoking urgent concern, bordering on panic from the Athenians who understood that Philip's goal was dangerously close to becoming realized. In that, if he was able to take control of this strategic waterway linking the Black Sea to the Aegean, this could be used to slow, if not entirely stop, the flow of grain coming out of the Athenian settlements around the Black Sea that were vital for feeding its population in Athens and bring the powerful city-state to its knees. Upon learning of the ease at which the Macedonians were cutting into the eastern Odrysian kingdom and along the Thracian coast, the Athenians quickly met to figure out how they were going to dissuade the Macedonians from this path, a cause that was largely driven by the words of Demosthenes, who we were introduced to in the last episode, and that had essentially made it his life's mission to highlight Macedon, and thus Philip as the greatest threat to Athenian dominance. Through which the Athenians quickly agreed on sending out a potent response. A large fleet of 40 triremes laden with troops, that once ready would set sail for Thrace to link up with the Adrigians, and help them ward off the Macedonian invasion. Now, the cost of undertaking such a heavy response would have been extremely burdensome for the Athenians, who as mentioned a number of times throughout this series were already stretched thin financially as it was, involved in numerous undertakings and conflicts all over the Aegean, while doing so with less annual revenue coming in, having recently lost out on allies and their associated tributes due to losing the social war and from the cities that Philip had wrestled from their hands. However, just as the assembling of the fleet started underway, The Athenians received the surprisingly delightful news that the Macedonian invasion had suddenly stalled, with Philip falling grievously ill shortly after, followed by another report that Philip had succumbed to the illness and died, causing the joyous Athenians to breathe a huge sigh of relief and cancel the costly operation. And although Philip didn't end up dying, much to the disappointment of the Athenians, this rumour wasn't too far from the truth of things, because the Macedonian king did reportedly come down with some type of severe illness, which brought him precariously close to death's doorstep and handing Cursobleptes a reprieve, with the Macedonians forced to abandon their invasion. And although cut short, this campaign had still eked out some successes, with yet more of Thrace brought under Macedon's control While also saving the cities of Perinthus and Byzantium from the aggressions of the Adrisian king. With Philip returning to his capital in Pella around mid 351 BCE, stabilized but in a weakened state, taking a great deal of time to recover from this mystery ailment, preventing any type of military campaigning. But being the workhorse that he was, Philip using this forced stoppage to focus on administration. Strengthening the grip on his growing kingdom, doing things like resettling populations within Macedon's newest territorial acquisitions, commissioning more building projects throughout the kingdom, including fortifications, while also aiming funds towards the expansion of his army. And it appears that he was becoming increasingly interested with what was happening within the Achaemenid Persian Empire as well. Around this time, receiving several prominent Persian exiles at his court in Pella. Opponents of the reigning king of kings, Artaxerxes III, who, interestingly, happened to be paying more attention to what was happening with Macedon as well, since its borders kept on stubbornly moving closer and closer to his. Through these exiles, Philip gained valuable information and insights into the politics and happenings within Artaxerxes' realms. And since they had connections to the western satrapies or provinces of the Achaemenid Empire, Philip then decided to protect and house these exiles in the Macedonian capital, as they could prove to be extremely useful in the future should he choose to invade at some point. Not really a viable option for now, given the many more pressing issues and enemies that existed much closer to Macedon's more immediate sphere, but still... Philip was certainly not one to avoid dreaming big nor close himself off to such a possibility, especially since there was an overdue level of retribution that remained to be paid, as mentioned back in episode 12, with Macedonia having been previously conquered by and subordinate to the Persians for 34 years, this ending in 479 BCE. For more than half a year through the balance of 351 BCE, Philip was primarily stationed in the Macedonian capital of Pella recovering, doing little in the way of travelling. And beyond the extensive kingdom admin work he had busied himself with, he couldn't help resist not staying completely idle when it came to the expansion of his realm. Because early into 350 BCE, a dispute erupted rather close to home, at the city of Acanthos, located just 150 kilometers to the southeast of Pella. On the easternmost peninsula of the Calcadese, that was effectively surrounded by the territories controlled by Macedon's neighbouring ally the Chalcidian League. Acanthos was an independent city that had a long history of bad blood with the Chalcidians, and as such was one of the few cities in the area that resisted joining in with their federation. And at this point in time for unknown reasons tensions between these adversaries flared up once again, with the powerful Chalcidians rattling their swords and threatening Acanthos with a military takeover, causing Philip to swoop in, not waiting or bothering to request permission from the Chalcidians before leading a sizable Mastonian force through their lands en route to Acanthos, and despite the irritated complaints offered up by their exasperated ally, then reinforcing and protecting the city, protecting it from falling to the Chalcidians. And shortly afterwards, though not surprising to us given what we know of Philip's devious ways, deposing Acanthos' leaders and claiming it as the newest addition to Macedon. Which may be raising the question, why would Philip undertake such an adversarial posture with an ally? Beyond the value of yet another city added to his kingdom with relative ease, largely because there were cracks forming in the alliance between the Macedonians and the Chalcidian League, in part due to the Chalcidians becoming increasingly uncomfortable with all the power that Philip had amassed and the territories that Macedon now controlled all around their territories, perhaps believing that they would be the ones targeted next by the ambitious Macedonian king. And I'm convinced that this was an accurate assessment on their part, since Philip was blatantly encroaching on their orbit of influence, with a Macedonian army sent unannounced through their lands as a political play or as a show of force, intended to send a clear message to the Chalcidians, making them understand that their alliance was not an understanding between equals, but rather that they were subordinate to Macedon's goals and objectives. A message that for obvious reasons left a bitter taste in the mouth of the Chalcidians, who were wise enough not to object too fervently, because although their military strength was substantial, it wasn't nearly strong enough to take on the might of the Macedonians by themselves. Having achieved his political goals in the Calcadise, Philip, now in much better health having recovered from his near-fatal illness, was restless after his relatively quiet pause in action, and of a mind to continue throwing his weight around, Making certain that other allies were aware of the hierarchy between their respective nations as he saw it, and by mid 350 B.C.E., Philip proceeded to march unannounced into Epirus, the allied nation that bordered Macedon to the southwest, about 250 kilometers from Pella, appearing at the head of his royal field army, probably not the entirety of his 20,000 troops that he had mustered for the Battle of Crocusfield. But definitely a meaningful proportion of his army, possibly around 15,000, to help reinforce his quote unquote diplomatic aims, with the remainder left behind in Macedon to help protect its borders in his absence. Now, the definitive reason for marching into Epirus is not completely understood. However, it's quite probable that its reigning ruler, King Eribus, whose niece was Philip's fifth wife, Olympias, mother to Alexander the Great, that Eribus was doing a rather poor job at keeping the troublesome raiding Illyrians in check, particularly the southern Illyrian tribes situated just north of Epirus and west of Macedon, in what today would be central Albania, that were beginning to rally around a new leader by the name of Pleuratus, who we'll hear more from later on and that Eribus may have gone to the extent of pointing the Illyrians to Philip's rich kingdom instead of his own, even helping them by allowing them to raid unharassed into western Macedon. A charge that Eribus of course would have vehemently denied. However, regardless of whether this was intentional or not, Eribus' lackluster reactions would have simply been unacceptable to Philip, who demanded more from his allies from a military standpoint. Largely because... The size of his expanding empire meant that Philip and his army couldn't be everywhere in the kingdom at once, and as such, he needed capable allies or buffer states in place that were also serving Macedon's needs, and thus shedding more light on the purpose of Philip's unannounced visit to Epirus, educating Eribus on this point, making it clear that if he wasn't capable of doing so, he had someone at the ready to replace him that could. Olympia's brother, Alexander of Epirus, who was heavily involved in Philip's army and court, and that, despite being a native from Epirus's royal family, had been won over by Philip as a firm Macedonian loyalist. And by the time that Philip left Epirus, probably towards late 350 or early 349 BCE, it appears that Eribus had fully accepted his kingdom's subordinate status to Macedon the biggest indicator of this being that Epirus started using Macedonian coinage as its national currency. With affairs settled for now in Epirus, Philip continued this authoritative tour, leading his army eastwards into Thessaly, then newly named Tagus spending some time in the inland regions of western Thessaly, settling regional affairs and asserting his hold on the territory, being that some pockets of discontent still remained with a foreigner being named as Tagus. However as this continued into mid 349 BCE, the Thessalian tour was suddenly interrupted with a flood of urgent reports coming in, Philip learning that the heart of his kingdom was under direct threat facing an invasion from the Chalcidian League and the Athenians who together were aiming to strike at the Macedonian capital of Pella. In truth it's unclear who exactly declared war first and initiated military action but it's pretty clear that relations between Macedonia and the Chalcidians went downhill very quickly, and I tend to lean towards the idea that it was the Chalcidians, bolstered by the Athenians that struck the first serious blow, looking to take advantage of the fact that Philip was away with Macedon being more lightly defended and thus more vulnerable at this particular moment. But before we continue on with the conflict let's take a few steps back to see how this Chalcidian League and Athenian alliance came to fruition. You see, the Athenians who had been constantly poking around trying to form alliances against Macedon, to their surprise, had found the Chalcidians to be much more open to their diplomatic overtures, despite their previous stonewalling. This change in attitude coinciding with Philip's brash actions at Acanthos, and possibly even earlier to that point, since the Chalcidians had been deeply unsettled with the sharp rise of Macedonian power and its aggressive behavior for some time. Accordingly, the Chalcidian League showed a willingness to negotiate with their former enemies, affirming an alliance with the Athenians, recognizing them as the only other nation capable of helping them defeat Philip. Now, I'm convinced that Philip had to have been aware that this was a possibility, maybe even a likelihood. Understanding the growing concerns that the Chalcidian League held with preserving their sovereignty in the face of expanding Macedonian power. That, aside from the open sea to their south, effectively surrounded them in every other direction. Because, as mentioned a little earlier, Philip made sure to leave his kingdom well defended. In addition to the typical garrisons protecting cities and key fortifications, keeping a significant portion of his field army behind in Macedon before setting off for Epirus in Thessaly. That said, let's jump into an exercise of some reasonable estimates and a bit of guesswork to get an idea of what Philip may have had in place to defend the kingdom. Now, based on the documented counts of Macedonian military strength at moments of key battles, and by the end of Philip's career when Alexander assumed his father's throne, at this time, I would estimate that Macedon had a total troop strength of around 30,000, of which roughly two-thirds or 20,000 made up the field army, with the remaining 10,000 situated throughout Macedonia as garrison units. Meaning that, if Philip had around 15,000 traveling with him in Epirus and Thessaly, that left at most probably eight to 10,000 Macedonian soldiers In a close enough proximity to where the Chalcidians and Athenians were attacking from that could be readily called upon to aid in the defense against invasion. Not a small army by the standards of the time by any means, but make no mistake, this was a huge problem because the Chalcidian League themselves had an army of 11,000 soldiers, already of a strength not to be taken lightly, now augmented and reinforced by what the Athenians were throwing into the mix a weighted response heavily influenced by the urgent words of Demosthenes, The Athenians moving quickly to scrape together an impressive force, landing 6,000, mostly mercenary troops into the Chalcades Peninsula, supported by nearly 50 Athenian warships, stretching Athenian military expenditures to the absolute limit. All said, adding up to a frightening invading force of just over 17,000, outnumbering the defending Macedonians nearly two to one. The Athenians seizing on this golden opportunity, determined to make this moment when Macedon was most vulnerable with Philip abroad, the point at which his kingdom and thus the rug was pulled right out from under his feet by force. With the plan to then galvanize the conquest through the Argiad bloodline, since Philip's two remaining half-brothers were soon revealed to have popped up at Alinthus, the leading and most influential city of the Chalcidian League. The two half brothers, Aridaeus and Menelaus, that we last heard from in episode 14, who in 358 BCE had escaped from Macedonia after a failed coup to install their brother, Archelaus as king, who ended up being executed by Philip. The Chalcidian and Athenian plan of course being to install one of these as the next Macedonian king, replacing Philip. Macedon was at risk of being overrun and the kingdom usurped before Philip and his army could arrive on the scene. Situated some 250 to 300 kilometers away, far inland somewhere in central north Greece, with no access to the sea to get them back home faster. And adding yet further strain to the situation was more urgent news coming in. Pointing to a rebellion against Philip's rule that had sparked and was gaining momentum in southern Thessaly, centered in the city of Pharae that had been conquered three years back in 352. Leaving Philip at a crossroads with a big decision ahead reaffirm power in Thessaly or make for Macedon immediately, each option coinciding with its fair share of risk. Of uncertainties in war and the necessity of risk taking, The renowned French general turned emperor Napoleon Bonaparte once famously said, If the art of war were nothing but the art of avoiding risks, glory would become the prey of mediocre minds. I have made all the calculations. Fate will do the rest. Warfare, from ancient through to modern times, has always involved leaders taking calculated risks. And Philip, although he did indeed stumble in a few instances, throughout the entirety of his career demonstrated quite the foresight for making the right decisions, far beyond the normal bounds of luck, intensely considering all the potential risks before selecting a path, and then, if needed, adapting it when moving forward. As seen in this situation, with Philip instead of immediately setting back out to Macedon, trusting his seasoned commanders and well-trained army to hold off the invasion until he could return. While he remained in Thessaly to deal with the insurrection there first. Which ended up being a wise move, since Thessaly, particularly southern Thessaly, was a relatively new acquisition and would have had a greater chance of succumbing to a wider rebellion, with the Macedonian garrisons heavily outmatched without Philip and his army around. Though, in the same breath, Philip would have still been keeping a close eye on what was unfolding in the north likely having a constant stream of status reports coming in to gauge the severity of the situation, should he need to shelve operations in Thessaly, but gaining more confidence in his decision in the coming days and weeks, learning that the Chalcidian-Athenian invasion that had launched in the summer of 349 had quickly been brought to a firm standstill, unable to make any significant inroads beyond Macedon's southern border, his defending troops doing an exemplary job, fighting a defensive campaign and holding back the incursions. Yet another proof point of the exceptional fighting force that Philip had built, including installing capable commanders based on merit to lead in his absence, even though sources don't indicate who exactly led this defensive effort. But even more importantly, giving Philip the breathing space he needed to thoroughly squash the rebellion emerging out of foray, keeping southern Thessaly firmly in his grasp. This before leading his 15,000 troops back into Macedon into early 348. Eager to go on the offensive, not just taming his former allies, but absorbing the entirety of their lands into his kingdom, the Chalcadise being just too close to Macedon's heartland to leave it as a client or vassal state. By the first blooms of spring in 348 BCE, the stage was set, with Philip soon ready to unleash a Macedonian tsunami of epic proportions that was about to come crashing down on the Chalcidians, and the Chalcidians alone. Why only the Chalcidians? Because they were indeed the only ones that were about to face the fallout and consequences of the failed invasion. Abandoned by the Athenians, who were forced to pull their mercenaries out of that theatre of war, To deal with another urgent bubbling conflict that was arising much closer to Athens' domains, on the nearby island of Avia. A long and narrow island that runs adjacent to much of the eastern coastline of mainland central Greece, separated by a narrow strait, nearly touching the southeastern tip of ancient Thessaly, the entire coast of Boeotia controlled by Thebes, and the eastern coast of Attica controlled by Athens. Another masterful political manipulation or diversionary tactic engineered by Philip, funded by Macedonian gold and silver. An initiative echoed by the words of Diodorus Siculus as follows For with the gold coins which he struck, which came to be known as Philippioi, he organized a large force of mercenaries, and by using these coins for bribes, induced many Greeks to become betrayers of their native lands. You see, while delayed in southern Thessaly mopping up the untimely rebellion there, Philip turned his out-of-the-way location far from the front lines into an advantage to begin indirectly fighting back against the invasion of Macedon to great effect. Through subterfuge, procuring and sending an army of mercenaries, probably in the low thousands, to the cities on the island of Evia that weren't particularly fond of the Athenians, to help support their takeover of the Athenian allied cities that currently controlled the majority of the island. Philip acutely understood the enormous value of Evia to the Athenians and the dire threat that the island represented in being pried away from their control. Beyond the risk of yet more of their allies being lost by the wayside, Evia was an important source of grain and livestock to Athens and historically During times of war when facing invasions to their lands in Attica, the Athenians would often send their herds there for safekeeping, to keep them from falling into enemy hands. Controlling the island also enabled Athens to better protect its trade routes from piracy. And lastly, the most scary prospect of all, possession of the island could potentially allow Philip to bring war right to Athens' doorstep, bypassing Thermopylae altogether traveling down the length of the island, then traversing the narrow strait into Attica, that is only a distance of about 40 meters at its narrowest. Simply too dire a threat for the Athenians to leap to chance, requiring an overwhelming response. Evia was too important, too vital to Athenian national security, trumping anything else that the Athenians had going on, something that Philip understood all too well. However, since the Athenians were stretched to their financial limits and not making any progress into Macedon, they decided to evacuate their units out of the Chalcidis Peninsula and redeploy them to Evia, sailing away on their warships to the dismayed stares of their beleaguered Chalcidian allies, exactly the outcome that Philip had been after. Although, before departing, the Athenians promising to return once the conflict in Evia was resolved, but this promise rang somewhat hollow, providing little comfort to the Chalcidians, a feeling that grew into something much more foreboding once, shortly after the Athenians departed, Philip arrived with his army at the northern frontier of the Chalcidian League, with the Chalcidians retreating back into their lands since they were the ones now outnumbered 2-1. to one. With Philip offering up only silence in response to the Chalcidian pleas for negotiation, Unconditional surrender being the only terms under which peace would be achieved. Unwilling to bow to this condition, the Chalcidians attempted giving battle, hoping to sting the Macedonian army sufficiently in order to weaken Philip's resolve and gain more leverage for negotiations. Forming up, blocking Philip's path into the Chalkidice and getting absolutely pummeled in two successive battles doing the exact opposite of what had been intended, and forcing the Chalcidian League to retreat deeper south into their lands, adopting a focused defensive strategy, using what remained of its tattered field army to reinforce the fortifications of the primary cities within the Confederation, concentrating most of this on the leading city, Olynthus. In the hopes of bogging down the Macedonian advance, and inflicting higher rates of casualties through costly sieges, again in the attempt of securing better negotiation leverage, this time through a strategy more so related to attrition. However, this left Olynthus isolated, actually in a number of ways, two unanticipated consequences of this strategy being, one, with nothing in field capable of harassing the Macedonian army Philip was quickly able to move the majority of his forces to surround and besiege Olynthus, after having destroyed the closest ports servicing the city, thereby physically cutting off the leading city to anyone else within the confederation. And two, since Olynthus received the bulk of the Chalcidian troop reinforcements, this greatly angered the other cities of the Chalcidian League, because they were left wide open and essentially defenseless to fight off the Macedonian assaults. This in particular, enabling Philip to quickly conquer many of their cities and lands, peeling off portions of his estimated 20,000 troops to go about easily capturing or accepting the unconditional surrender of most Chalcidian cities, including army desertions that were welcomed into Philip's ranks. All in all, a lightning quick campaign, soon leaving only the city of Olynthus standing alone by the late summer of 348 its strong walls and fortifications continuing to withstand the unabating assaults of Macedonian siege weapons and troops. Even if the Athenians managed to return with soldiers, it was unlikely that this would have been enough to make any difference by that point. The Olynthians realized that it was just a matter of time before they were overcome, and so, attempting to secure an end to hostilities, they sent one final envoy to Philip with, according to Demosthenes in his third Philippic speech, Philip providing the following terse response to their proposal, declaring that, either the Olythians must cease to dwell in their city, or Philip in his kingdom. Making it resoundingly clear, that there was to be no solution other than complete domination, succinctly ending any hopes of clemency on the part of the Macedonian king. The Macedonians under Philip were becoming masters of siege warfare, and by 348 BCE their arsenal of siege machines had matured beyond the battering rams and ladders used at Amphipolis, Potidaea, and Methone, now including torsion powered catapults that were put to use here, steadily reducing Olynthus' walls to rubble. In fact, to this date, The ruins of Olynthus offer up one of the best preserved plans of a 4th century BCE Greek city, and archaeological digs of the ruins have since uncovered a treasure trove of siege weapon missiles inscribed with offensive words that were thrown in by Philip's troops. Remnants to the utter destruction unleashed by the Macedonians. Upon bringing down Olynthus' walls, some accounts mentioning the possibility of treachery or bribes used to help bypass some of their defenses, The Macedonian troops then stormed the city, bitterly slogging it out with the Chalcidians on the streets of Olynthus, who were able to put up a stubborn defense, inflicting heavy losses on the Macedonians as well. Despite their brave defense however, the end was unavoidable, with Olynthus falling to Philip's forces by the late summer of 348. With Philip, true to his chilling response to Olynthus' overtures, then ordering the city to be razed to the ground. And unlike previous instances, wherein the inhabitants of conquered cities were largely spared any undue malevolence, Philip intended to make an example of Olynthus and the dismal fate that awaited those with the audacity to invade his kingdom. With the remaining inhabitants sold into slavery, with the exception of his two half-brothers that were promptly executed thereby eliminating the last of those that dared to suggest that they had a competing claim to the Macedonian throne. And, adding insult to injury to the Olynthians, it appears that in the days that followed, shortly after the capture of the city, an Athenian fleet did indeed appear in view off the coast of the Chalcades peninsula, intending to help their allies. After having dealt with a Macedonian-stoked flare-up in Evia, However, seeing that they were late and the cause completely lost, they soon turned about, sailing back off towards Athens to report on what they had seen. Which was essentially, Philip and a Macedonian kingdom that was larger and stronger than ever. Enriched by the addition of the entire Chalcades peninsula, its land, peoples, resources, including over 30 cities and towns, many of which formed vital parts of the lucrative trade routes along the northwestern coast of the Aegean Sea. Not to mention the Chalcidian League being dissolved, meaning no foes to mast on southern flank, which now reached all the way to the Aegean. And since this conquest had been completed by late summer, this victory made the ensuing celebrations held in the autumn of 348 all the sweeter. Macedon's version of an Olympic-style competition and celebration, commemorating the king of the gods Zeus, held in the southern Macedonian city of Diem at the base of Mount Olympus, attracting poets, actors, orators, and athletes from all over Macedon and Greece. An undoubtedly lavish affair, with Macedon and Philip at the center of everything. The Macedonian king was looking truly unbeatable at this time, And the Athenians from first-hand experience knew this better than anyone, and were finally coming to the realization that they needed a new approach to deal with the Macedonian menace, having been bested time and time again. Of course, the war was taking its toll on Macedon as well, Athenian naval activity being particularly ruinous to much of its seagoing trade activities and continually harassing its Thracian coastal possessions but it was undoubtedly clear to all that Philip was winning the war. The Athenians needed time to catch their breath, rebuild their strength in alliances, while wholly re-evaluating their strategy to oppose Macedon's rise to dominance and reassert their own claim to this lofty perch. Resulting in the Athenians sending communications to Philip over the winter of 348-347 BCE to begin discussing terms for peace, ending the war between their nations. When thinking about the Athenians arriving too late to aid their Chalcidian allies, I can't help but draw upon this as a symbolic representation of what Athenian power had become. Still meaningful, yes, but a shade of its former self, outmaneuvered and unaccustomed to moving at Philip's frenzied pace, with some additional examples of lackluster Athenian responses including, arriving late to the Battle of Crocus Field in 352, unable to send enough reinforcements to keep the city of Methone from falling in 354, the same of Potidaea in 356, with sluggish Athenian responses also allowing the cities of Amphipolis and Pydna to fall to Philip in 357 in quick succession. Now, some of this is simply related to geography, proximity to the respective decision-makers many of these events happening much closer to Macedon's domains and supply lines, an important aspect of this conflict that can't be overstated. But, as mentioned a number of times throughout the series so far, what I believe to be the perpetual anchor dragging Athens down to the depths was that they continued to be involved in wars and altercations all over the Aegean. Operating under the false belief that they were the same Athenian empire that had arisen to true dominance in the 5th century BCE. Stretching their resources, financial, military and otherwise, precariously thin over prolonged periods of time. Riding this fine edge for so long that when faced with an adversary like Philip, who rose to gather and command such vast resources, the Athenians had little in the way of reserves again financial, military or otherwise, to adequately meet this new foe. And despite having reprioritized Macedon as one of its major concerns at the urging of Demosthenes, they didn't have a focused strategy to deal with this barbarian upstart, mainly just reacting, typically late, to whatever Philip was doing. In fact, in the first of his Philippic speeches in the Athenian assembly, warning of the impending danger that Macedon posed to Athenian dominance Demosthenes criticized his countrymen for their abysmal track record against Philip, stating, Athenians, you fight against Philip like a barbarian in a boxing match. If he is hit on one side, he promptly clutches the place. Then when he is hit on the other side, there go his hands. Could he fend off or avoid these blows? And how? He neither knows nor cares, and you are just like him. If you hear that Philip is in one place, you send help there if he is in another place, you rush there. Wherever he goes, you run to and fro after him, as if he were your commander rather than your enemy. A compelling argument that resonated with his fellow countrymen, but with so much laughable irony built into that statement, assuming barbarians as simpletons, when Philip, as a Macedonian, that most certainly fit the classification of a barbarian according to Athenians, was categorically outplaying them. The reality was that this was a very different Athens to their 5th century reflection, prior to the Peloponnesian war against Sparta. Operating under a false belief of unassailable power, a relic of past glories that was self-defeating, making them much less effective than they could have been. Granted, we have the distinct advantage of hindsight to help us see this more clearly. Although, by this point, this notion was starting to dawn on them as well. Realizing that they needed a pause in hostilities, using this time to figure out a new strategy, better opportunities to take the fight to Macedon, the cornerstone of which would be assembling a coalition of unparalleled military strength to combat what the Macedonians under Philip had become. Also, being that the Athenians understood that they didn't have a field army sufficient to take on the Macedonians alone. Accordingly, peace talks between Macedon and Athens began and while initiated in early 347, the terms were far from settled, with Philip knowing that he had the upper hand being the one to firmly lay down conditions with no wiggle room. The Athenians finding this quite foreign, unaccustomed to such negotiations, since they were typically the ones used to setting the terms. Now, this had to have been a large blow to Athenian pride, and so it makes sense that negotiations slowly trudged along for some time with no settlement in sight. Though not one to waste time, this was a period in which Philip didn't remain idle from his conquering ways, aiming back eastwards towards the realm of King Cursobleptes, looking to finish what a severe illness had preemptively ended four years prior in 351, which was the complete domination of the Adrysian kingdom in Thrace and relegating Cursobleptes to the status of a vassal ruler, subject to the kingdom of Macedon. Although, an important note to include here is that this eventual subjugation didn't apply to much of northern Thrace, modern southern Bulgaria, that was ruled by various independent tribal nations. This, Philip would address at a later date. What ended up happening here was another short campaign into Thrace, lasting a little over a year that, again, sadly, we don't know much about. But reportedly one wherein Philip and his Macedonian troops swept into Cursobleptes' kingdom, readily overwhelming any resistance encountered and achieving what Philip had been aiming to do. Leaving what remained of the Odrysian territories not outright annexed by Philip under Cursobleptes, but only with the Odrysian king swearing obedience to the Macedonian king and handing over his son as a hostage to ensure compliance, raised as a page within Philip's court in Pella. This was a campaign also notable for the Macedonian forces capturing yet more Greek settlements along the Thracian coast of the Aegean Sea. Not harming, but casting out any Athenian garrisons that they came across, re-establishing Macedon's eastern border as far as the Hebrus River, today called the Maritsa River, which, today in its lower course, forms much of the border between Greece and Turkey, the Macedonians pushing ever closer to the Dardanelles Strait. Greatly unnerving the Athenians who were desperate to stop the bleed, and more motivated than ever to get the peace deal done before any more of their holdings were lost. Prompting the Athenians to send a group of ambassadors to Pella, that included Demosthenes to help move things along more quickly and finalize the peace agreement with Philip. The Athenian delegation arriving in Pella in the early spring of 346 BCE, ready to do so, but required to wait for Philip to return from his campaigning in Thrace. And surprised to find ambassadors from all over Greece, Thessalians, Thebans, Phocians, and Spartan envoys, also waiting for Philip to return seeking an audience with the powerful Macedonian king in order to win his favor, knowing that his support could tip the scale for whatever political goals they were seeking to achieve. Taking us to the scene that we covered at the top end of this episode, and a configuration that Philip would have been extremely satisfied to find upon returning from his campaign in Thrace, because this essentially marked a major milestone. More intangible, but undeniably important in a culture obsessed with honour. Recognition and respect from all Greek nations, including the former hegemons, now regarding Macedon as a major power, no longer a secondary player situated on the fringes of their world. In the days that followed, Philip met with each of these parties, negotiating behind closed doors which was very different from how such discussions were conducted in most Greek states, notably Athens, that held these types of meetings out in the open. All of this culminating to create an aura of suspicion and uncertainty among the various delegations from each nation. So, just to clarify things here for a moment, there were two main items at play during these discussions. 1. Maston and Athens working towards a bilateral peace agreement, And two, all the aforementioned parties imploring Philip to help broker an end to the exhaustive Third Sacred War, while attempting to influence Philip to do so in a fashion that furthered their own interests at the expense of everyone else. You see, the Third Sacred War that we spoke about extensively in the last two episodes was still ponderously grinding along now in its tenth year. And since the Macedonian victory at the Battle of Crocus Field in 352 BCE, with Thessaly no longer under threat and largely unified under Philip's authority, he hadn't involved his kingdom in the conflict any further. Most of the fighting beyond that point mainly occurring between Thebes and Phocis, primarily consisting of small raids and skirmishes, neither side being capable or wanting to risk even more casualties in the name of going for a knockout blow. So what exactly did each group want to get out of these meetings with Philip? Well, it's complicated, but I've tried to distill their intentions down to the basics. Thebes was aggressively lobbying for Philip to again intervene in the war, this time destroying focus fully for its sacrilegious ways, or at the very least sending Thebes the necessary military help so that they could complete the job, with the underlying intent of taking over the entirety of Phocis' lands, which Sparta and Athens had a vested interest in preventing, so as to not reinvigorate Thebes, which could potentially allow them to rise to hegemonic prominence again. The Thessalians had a delegation there for optic's sake, but since Philip was the Tagus, these ambassadors were more akin to advisors, with Philip being the ultimate decision maker. And finally, there were the Phocian ambassadors, that also wanted an end to the war, but without the severely harsh penalties that would have been exacted by Thebes if they were to get their way, which would have essentially resulted in phocis's annihilation. On the surface, the Phocians were exhibiting steadfast commitment to continuing the war effort, holding two visibly strong hands. The first, retaining a large army that was still in field, numbering approximately 8-10,000 to mercenaries now led by Philecos, the son of the previous Phocian commander Onomarchos, whom Philip had defeated and killed at the Battle of Crocus Field. And second, using a large portion of their forces to control the pass at Thermopylae, meaning that by holding this passage, the Phocians alone controlled who could travel into northern Greece and who could travel into central Greece by land a position which was of considerable strategic importance. However, unbeknownst to all the other parties, underneath this confident veneer was a nation hanging on for dear life, being that the Phocians by this point had scraped the treasury of the Temple of Apollo bare of all its gold and silver, meaning that time was running out for them, as was coin to pay for their mercenary troops. And so they were trying to bluff their way through to a more palatable end than what the Thebans were offering before they were rendered defenceless. As you can probably tell by this point, with so many competing interests among all these different parties, this was going to take much more in terms of meetings and negotiations to arrive at a solution that everyone could live with. Accordingly, despite Philip briefly engaging with each delegation, Shortly after arriving from his campaign in Thrace, this left more questions rather than conclusions hanging about, which of course, was a purposeful tactic enacted by the slippery Macedonian king, endeavouring to keep everyone off balance and preoccupied with each other's goals. Followed by all the ambassadors being roused one morning, surprised to learn that Philip would be marching out with his army to deal with another rebellious uprising, that had erupted in the city of Alos in southern Thessaly, located about 20 kilometers south of Foray, requiring all the ambassadors be ready to travel in the column as well, so that further discussions could be held as they covered the 200 kilometer distance from Pella to Foray, where the Macedonians would set up their headquarters. Throughout this time, even when landing in Foray by late June 346, the various delegations finding it exceedingly difficult to pin Philip down amidst his busy schedule overseeing the siege of Alos. Although one notable exception was that he had prioritized the meetings with the Athenians in order to get a final draft of their bilateral peace agreement developed, but in doing so suddenly taking a hard line on the conditions he had been proposing unwilling to consider any more concessions being raised by the Athenian delegates, eventually dismissing them to return to Athens and present the document for ratification in the assembly. Two of the conditions that the Athenians found particularly difficult to swallow including that Philip would accept nothing less than each side keeping all the territories and cities that they currently held, including those taken from the Athenians and its allies. Even inserting a point that the Athenians would forever renounce their claims to the gold rich city of Amphipolis that Macedon had captured back in 357. And another humiliation, in limiting who the Athenians were allowed to make agreements with, specifically that they would not be permitted to make any further alliances with Cursobleptes in Thrace or any entities whatsoever in Thessaly, with no such constraints applied to the kingdom of Macedon. All of this amounting to a deal that was deeply unsettling to the Athenian ambassadors, since it was they who were typically the ones used to dictating the terms of any such agreements. Begrudgingly, Demosthenes and the rest of his counterparts departed from Phurea, probably quite doubtful that the assembly would ratify this deal. However, what they didn't have awareness of was that Philip had an ace up his sleeve that would put a great deal of pressure on the Athenians to accept the agreement as is. And while, as expected, the peace deal was soundly rejected when initially presented in Athens in early July 346, some days later, disturbing news emerged from the north, sparking a reversal of their position. Learning, not only that the Macedonian troops were now in possession of Thermopylae, but also that Philip and his army were loose in central Greece in focus. And what made this knowledge even more horrifying, was that now there was nothing from preventing him from leading his troops directly to the city of Athens, which is what spurred the Athenian assembly to accept the peace agreement as is, an agreement that would later become known as the Peace of Philocrates, named for the politician that had initially suggested approaching Macedon for peace. So how did Philip gain possession of Thermopylae so readily when it had been in the hands of a sizable Phocian force in a prime defensive position capable of inflicting massive casualties on any assailants? This rather impressive achievement was not the product of military force, but of quick movement, clever negotiations, and a backroom handshake between Philip and the Phocian commander Philecos. With the Phocians allowing Philip to take possession of the strategic pass and enter into their lands, surrendering, and thereby ending the war that had clearly become unwinnable for them, in return for a much reduced penalty imposed on their people and Philecos, who was allowed to depart unharmed and most likely lavishly bribed, setting him up comfortably to live out the rest of his life elsewhere. You see, under the veil of the macedonian siege of Alos, which continued and was later completed under his trusted general Parmenion, Philip quietly peeled off probably around half of the 20,000 troops he had with him and quickly marched them off to Thermopylae, 80 kilometers south of Alos, before anyone was the wiser, where the strategic passage was then handed over to him by Philecos, with Philip leaving a garrison in place before advancing another 40 kilometers southeast, stopping at the city of Elethia, Phocis' principal city. All of this happening while the Athenian ambassadors were returning to their city to debate the bilateral peace agreement, and while all the other Greek delegations had been left in the dark, awaiting more meetings in foray to decide how the Third Sacred War would be ended. Using a skillful combination of diplomatic brilliance and his army's impressive mobility in one foul swoop through this decisive march, Philip secured both a hugely advantageous peace deal with Athens and some serious accolades throughout Greece for ending the Third Sacred War. Another example of Philip being the Avenger of the Gods, doing what no other nation in Greece was able to do. Philip subsequently took control of focus and called for the Amphictyonic League to meet in order to decide its fate. And despite Theban leaders calling for harsh penalties, amounting to its utter destruction, effectively causing focus to cease to exist, including its entire male population being put to death and its lands divided up, most of it going to Thebes in compensation for the war, punishments that wouldn't entirely be out of the question as far as the sacred war was concerned, Philip did not allow this to come to fruition honoring the deal he had made with Philecos and using his newfound influence to impose a much more reduced sentence which involved the kingdom of Maston being given Phocis's former position and votes in the amphictyonic league thereby allowing Philip to supplant Thebes as the leader of the league since he also controlled Thessaly and its votes additional consequences including most of Phocus's cities destroyed with the population resettled into smaller new towns with no fortifications, all of their weapons destroyed and horses taken, prohibited from acquiring replacements, and every year from there on in Phocis would be required to pay back a portion of what they had taken from the temple of Apollo in Delphi until the entire amount was repaid, all of this being overseen by Macedon and Thebes who both established garrisons in Phocis, ensuring that the defeated fulfilled the sentence. Of course, not everyone was satisfied with how the end of the Third Sacred War had played out, and there were many disgruntled politicians, from Sparta and Athens for obvious reasons since Phocis had been their ally, and some from Thebes that wanted to extract more from Phocis than they had been allowed. However, it seems that they were greatly outnumbered by the vast majority of the common populace and leaders from other Greek nations that were overjoyed to see an end to the exhaustive conflict and the honor of the gods restored. With Philip, in turn, honored, respected, and even venerated for having completed this monumental task, achieving what no one else had been able to do. A notion that wasn't entirely true, but became true. Let me explain. About a year prior to the end of the Third Sacred War, Thebes reportedly had an opportunity to end the war but needed more military muscle to do so, requesting that Philip send troops to fill this need. And while Philip did send a force large enough to honor his alliance with Thebes, he made sure it wasn't big enough to break the deadlock, desiring to save the glory and accolades for ending the war all to himself which, as Philip had calculated, ended up being a major step in the rise of Macedon, allowing him to assume a leadership role in Greek affairs. But that also coincided with an undercurrent of apprehension among some of Macedon's Greek allies, Thebes in particular, that viewed their cooperation with Macedon as a double-edged sword. An undoubtedly powerful ally in times of need, but one to keep a watchful eye on, Considering the sudden and sharp surge in Macedonian might that had thrown a huge wrench into the established pecking order, as proven by Macedon, and thus Philip replacing Thebes as the nation in control of the Amphictyonic League. As powerful as Philip and the kingdom of Macedon had become, also now in possession of Thermopylae, with the ability to move in and out of central Greece at will it may be difficult to understand why he didn't use this opportunity to press on southwards, with the city of Athens in his line sight and not much standing in the way of getting there. And following that line of thinking, why even bother with a peace agreement in the first place? Some historians have argued that fighting Athens for supremacy in Greece was never his goal, desiring an alliance of equals with Athens all along, the undisputed naval power of the Aegean as a willing partner in crime for the bigger exploits that lay ahead, the invasion of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. And while one could make a good argument to support this position, I'm not totally convinced by this, because while Philip would have been aware of the immense value of their naval power as a complement to his exquisite land forces, as evidenced by his earlier actions, Philip was continually on the lookout for opportunities to make it clear that any supposed allies were actually subordinates, whose goals and objectives came second to those of his kingdom. And as future actions would later show, despite the peace agreement, Philip was continually and covertly working in the shadows to destabilize and weaken Athens through tactics like piracy and triggering rebellions amongst its allies. What I think is far more likely. Given this and what we know of this Macedonian monarch is that Philip did indeed want to make all of Greece bow to Macedonian might, but in a manner that wouldn't necessarily ignite a huge adverse and collective response from the various Greek states. Adding to that point, Philip had just won tremendous acclaim throughout Greece for ending the Third Sacred War, widely regarded as a leader or a champion in Greek affairs and therefore would have been hesitant to take any actions that would tarnish this image and risk looking like some type of warmongering belligerent. However, all these thoughts and theories may just be background noise to a more pragmatic issue that was drawing Philip's attention back northwards. More specifically, the Western and Northwestern limits of Macedon's territories. Where, as alluded to a little earlier in the episode, an upstart Illyrian king By the name of Pleuritus, after having accumulated some influence and troops, reminiscent of the Illyrian tribal kings before him, began more aggressively and repeatedly raiding into Macedon's domains, posing enough of a threat that Philip felt compelled to deal with it directly. As such, it worked to Philip's advantage to let the dust settle in central Greece for now, after the recent turbulence freeing him and the bulk of his army to address the troublesome Illyrians, rather than stirring up further conflict in Greece and being faced with the potential strain of fighting wars in two different fronts at once. Plus, he could always venture back into central Greece later if required, or once a better opportunity presented itself, since Thermopylae was firmly in his hands, a position that everyone was undoubtedly cognizant of. And that was particularly troubling to the Athenians, who, despite having recently signed the Peace of Philocrates with Macedon, remained quietly but aggressively on the search for allies to build a coalition capable of bringing Philip down, including making generous overtures reaching out to one of its biggest traditional rivals in central Greece, Thebes. Though, at least for now, finding no takers no one willing to throw in their allegiance with Athens, being that Macedon was in a prime position of strength, looking unbeatable at the moment. However, considering Philip's track record of unabating aggression with a growing number of enemies, those feeling increasingly threatened or those that he had maligned on his way to the top, the Athenians were hawkish in their observations, hopeful that it was just a matter of time before Philip made a serious misstep or mistake to offer a glimmer of vulnerability. Accordingly, the Athenians used this pause in hostilities to bide their time and refocus, finally concentrating their efforts on the task of bringing Macedon to heel, waiting for such a moment to occur so that they could pounce and convince others to join in on a crusade against Macedon relegating these barbarians back to where they belong on the fringes of the Greek world. A gathering storm that Philip saw approaching far off on the horizon, and that he was in fact steering his kingdom towards, knowing that victory in this inevitable clash would accelerate his mastery over Greece, placing Macedon at the pinnacle of its power. But interestingly, not at the end of his ambitions, Viewing this as a stepping stone to more lofty goals, making into a reality what no other Greek leader or nation could do other than dream about. In the next episode, the conclusion of our series on Philip II of Macedon will follow along as Philip continues preparing for the monumental battles ahead, scaling up his fearsome Macedonian army, covertly working in the background of the peace of Philocrates to erode Athenian power. This, while the Macedonian king goes back north, spending the next six years completing the domination of his kingdom's Balkan neighbours, bringing both the Illyrians and Odrysians to their knees including a little-known campaign against a surprising foe in northern Thrace, the Scythians, the fierce horse lords of the Eurasian steppe and predecessors of the Mongols. Exceedingly difficult campaigns that take a heavy physical toll on Philip, receiving two serious injuries, one of which nearly ends his life, and two considerable failures. The show of weakness that Athens was waiting for, failed Macedonian sieges on two important Greek cities near the Bosporus, Perinthus and Byzantium, greatly angering a major ally of theirs, the city-state of Thebes, allowing Athens to swoop in, forming the basis and most important pieces of the Grand Greek Coalition against Philip. Better characterized as a veritable crusade being called against Macedon, the Fourth Sacred War and the Climactic Battle of Chaeronea in 338 BCE, Philip's crowning achievement. Ultimately, allowing the Kingdom of Macedon to assert unequivocal dominance in Greece and take their initial steps to bring down the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Shortly afterwards, followed by his assassination and where we'll then spend some time unpacking Philip's magnificent legacy. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. It would be greatly appreciated if you could rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode that you can take a look at, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on future warlords that you think I should do an episode on. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com.